your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues. I'm your host, Don Watkins, and this is part two of a three-part interview with my colleague at the Ayn Rand Institute, Yaron Brook on finance, one of the chief targets of the campaign against inequality. Let's get started. So now let's look at hedge funds. Now, yeah, because the objection there, first of all, people usually don't even know what they yeah. do. I think the major objection there is that it seems to be a uh, ridiculous setup, no lose for the guys who are managing the fund, right? They're, they're going to yeah. take their money off the top doing whatever it is they do, and then if the price goes down and their client loses a bunch of money, they still you know, get their base fee. So, so yes, but uh, so hedge funds, uh, hedge funds, the way they get, they're compensated is they get a fee, and then they get a percentage of the profits. Uh, classic, classic distribution, but they vary quite a bit, is 2% fee and a 20% of all the profits. Um, but a lawyer gets a fee. An accountant gets a fee. Lots of people get fees, and they might do a lousy job for you. Um, and what would you do if they do a lousy job after you've paid them the fee? You fire them, which is exactly what investors would do to a hedge fund manager who took the fee and then lost money for them. They get fired. And reputations get built. So if uh, the hedge fund business is very fickle business, that is, investors will move money out of your fund very quickly if you disappoint them and move into somebody who's doing well. And somebody who's done well for quite a period, uh, if he loses a little bit, people will give him a lot more leeway than somebody who hasn't got a track record. So it's, it's very much a business that's based on merit. And what's interesting about the hedge fund business is that not like the mutual fund business, where past performance does not reflect future performance, in the hedge fund business, past performance does tend to reflect future performance. That is, good performers tend to continue to be good performers. And and this has to do with the fact that hedge funds are less regulated than mutual funds, and mutual funds don't attract the best managers Hedge funds do because they can pay their managers better because they're less regulated. So what hedge funds are bringing to the table is really, really smart people who are figuring out what variety of different financial assets are really worth. And in that sense, making financial markets more efficient. Efficient in the sense that the prices reflect the real value of the assets that they're pricing, whether they're derivatives, whether they're bonds, or whether they're stocks. So these are really, really smart people who are constantly looking for opportunities where prices are are deviating from reality, and then they, they either buy them to drive them up or short them to drive them down. So they increase the meaningfulness of prices. At the same time, they provide liquidity, which allows people to buy and sell, so it allows the other side of transaction to get out. 
uh, and they provide returns for savers, right? Who would who would like who want returns? So you know, it's people demonize hedge funds all the time, but but uh, most a lot of the people who are demonizing hedge funds tend to be in them because uh, most pension plans, all pension plans, have a hedge fund allocation. So when the unions go out there and blast financiers, it's financiers are making money so they can retire one day. Without them, well, I guess taxpayers kick in and they, and they retire off of taxpayers. But, but it's, 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 the, it's the hedge funds that are making it possible for people to retire. They're making it possible for people to, to benefit from the rise in productivity, which is reflected in the increase of asset prices in the stock market and places like that. Um, so that's the primary function uh, of hedge funds. I mean, a lot of these hedge funds do mathematical things, right? They have algorithms and it's very mathematical. But even when they're doing mathematical things, what they're ultimately doing is making markets more efficient, reflect prices faster, reflect more, uh, reflect information that's more accurate, and make it so different marketplaces around the world in, in, in different stocks are not out of sync with one another. There's a certain, so if, I don't know, if, if, uh, if the price of gold is going down, it's not just going down in America, it's going down globally. Hedge funds make that happen faster. Well, why is that a value, the speed, particularly if we're talking about differences of they're making it more efficient, let's say, in the span of hours or days, you know, this is not like the price would be out of sync for six months back before we had, you know, telegraph lines or anything. Well, because because particularly in the world today, I mean, it, it's it's funny how this works, right? Um, we become a technologically advanced uh, uh, world in which speed matters a lot, and we expect people to make faster decisions, and we expect people to to respond much much faster. And, of course, that is reflected within the financial industry as well. Things are happening much, much faster as a result. So it's, it's important, much more important today to, to get to embed information into prices fast rather than slow because people a, expect that because we live in a faster world because of technology and because people are making decisions. You know, they, they, they're making decisions much quicker, much faster, um, Product gets to market a lot faster. Uh, innovation happens a lot faster. Co- competition happens a lot faster. Again, because technology is moving information so much faster. Um, so, so it's a value. It's a value in that sense. And, and look, there's a, there's a disvalue in, in being slow that somebody is going to fill that hole. So let's say there's information that says GM is worth half the price, or let's say it's double, let's be in the positive. The GM is actually worth double what it's worth today. Some, they've just invented a new car that flies, right? What's the advantage of waiting with that, right? There's no advantage in saying, oh, well, one day that'll be reflected. But if it's reflected immediately, then everybody can say, whoa, what's going on with GM? Something's happening with GM. People go and investigate, and the rest of the economy responds to this news much, much faster. That's an advantage. Productivity, speed is important for productivity. Right? You, you, you can imagine that on a, um, on, a, on a, what do you call it, a conveyor belt. Right? The faster the conveyor belt, the faster we stamp, the more stuff gets done. Well, the same with information. The quicker we get information, the quicker we can respond, the more productive we can be. Um, now, now let, me, let me say something, though, about financial innovation and regulation, and this leads into the discussion of high-frequency traders. 
Um, much of the financial innovation that has happened over the last 50 years is a response to regulation. Government regulates the financial industry in many, 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 many ways. And, and from the beginning, and, and it's only increasing. It only increases in spite of the deregulation. At the end of the day, financial regulation only increased at the state level, at the federal level, at the regulatory agency level. Financial markets are going to respond to that regulations in, by finding ways around them. Because what do regulations do? Regulations restrain. They put you in a box, and they restrain your ability to allocate capital. But if, there's, it's, it, but if there's a real need over here for a particular kind of product or, or for capital, and you can't get there because the government has put these restraints on you, you're going to build a tunnel underneath the wall. It's, it's like the drug war, right? As long as there's demand for drugs in the United States, drugs will find their way in here. As long as there's money to be made from allocating capital to productive function, financial markets will find a way to allocate the capital there. It might require convoluted uh, 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 financial instruments. It might require huge amounts of money. And it, as long as it's still profitable, at the end of the day, they will do it. And so many of the things we take for granted today in terms of financial products are a consequence of this. You know, money markets accounts, which most people have today, they were created in order to get around the regulation that prohibited banks from paying interest on corporate checking accounts. So they're not called checking accounts. We roll them into what are called money market accounts that are set and they, and they, they don't give you interest that on, on the check on the account. What they're giving you interest is on the instruments you buy at the end of the day. So the bank basically takes the money out of your account at the end of the day, goes, buys a bunch of financial instruments, sells them the next morning and puts it back into your checking account. And that's just a game. It's just moving stuff around. But there's a whole money market account now as a consequence of this game, and we call it, you know, and it's all just a way around a particular regulation. And there are thousands of these. High frequency trading is a response to regulation. Um, and in this case, the reg my understanding of the regulation is this. In the old days, the New York Stock Exchange stocks traded on New York Stock Exchange. NASDAQ stocks traded on the NASDAQ, and they had different systems, they had different ways of which they traded, they had different rules for trading. Each exchange established its own, if you will, regulatory regime uh, on top of the SEC regime. Um, a few years ago, the SEC decided that that didn't make sense because all trading was now electronic. Why couldn't the NASDAQ trade NYSE stock and the NYSE trade NASDAQ stock? And why couldn't those stocks trade internationally and everywhere? So you could now trade the same stocks in many different locations. Now they've created this weird game that because in different exchanges and different locations they might be a, these things might be trading at slightly different prices at any given millisecond, suddenly there's an incentive now for somebody to come in and try to equate those prices in that millisecond. And there's money to be made doing it. Now, is that serving a, a, an incredibly important productive function? No, but y there's money on the table. Somebody is going to take advantage of it. Somebody is going to make it. But it's an artificial thing created by regulation. If we had kept the exchanges separate, you, there's nothing you couldn't do it. 
right? Because all the everything's traded here, or everything's traded here, but now everything's traded in lots of different places. So it, it, the absurdities are that these high-frequency traders place their servers close to a particular exchange or close to a particular fiber lines so that they can get faster to the place to get rid of these. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, right? I can't see any negative aspect to it. They're making a little bit of money. They're making, prices are reflecting information even faster. It's not a negative. It's not a great, huge positive. But it would have never even come up, I don't think, if not for these kind of regulations. And and you see so much of that in, in the financial industry. Um, we'll come back to derivatives in a second when we turn to the financial crisis, but I want to take one more kind of broad issue, and that's the debate on economic inequality. And the financial industry has been, with Occupy Wall Street in particular, targeted as a real source of inequality. And so I would ask it this way, do you think the financial industry has contributed to rising inequality and if so, what do you make of that? So, so, so first, why is it such a target of, of the left and Occupy? And I'd say it's a target because it's an easy target, because people hate the financiers anyway. Uh, so it's, it's easy to target them. And then it's also easy to say they don't do anything productive. They just pay for shufflers. So why are they making so much money? So Americans still believe that inequality is okay if it reflects productivity if it reflects creation, reflects what you've done. With finance, because they don't understand finance and because it's hard and because it's removed from their lives, it seems like, why are they making so much money? What do they do? They don't, they're paper, paper shufflers. So I think that's why they chose it, right? That's why they chose that industry to go after. The other element that makes it e- an easy target is the regulations. The financial industry is clearly perceived as a crony industry, and uh, therefore, are their profits earned to the extent that they are cronies, right, the extent that they get government favors? And, and it gets messy because there is a lot of cronyism on Wall Street. There is a lot p- primarily because government, they have no option because government's in their lives, in their businesses, in their offices. Um, so, so, in that, so that's why that's the target. It's the cronyism and it's the lack of understanding what finance does. Um, now... I don't believe inequality is a problem. So do finances make a lot of money, huge amounts of money? Yes. Um, is some of that a consequence of cronyism? Yes. And, and we should fight that. But the way to fight that is to fight the cronyism, not to fight the inequality or to find the money they're making, but to fight the cronyism, to get government out of, the, out of banking and, or out of finance. And we can talk about what that looks like, but it's out of finance. Um, but then take the least regulated parts of the financial industry, hedge funds and private equity, which are very unregulated, relatively unregulated, not very unregulated. They used to be very unregulated and now are quite a bit regulated, but relatively less regulated. They're certainly not crony. There's only crony about hedge funds. It's not like some of the Wall Street banks where, where there clearly is cronyism going on. Yet everybody hates them too, Right. So it, 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 the Hogonism explanation breaks down when you get to hedge fund. Um, now, people don't understand what they do, granted, but the fact that hedge fund managers make a huge amount of money, I think is a reflection of the fact that they're hugely productive. That is, that they A, are making money for their clients, so they're making money for us and our ability to retire, 
uh, many pension plans, many insurance companies, but many individual investors uh, are invested in hedge funds. And the reason they're making so much money is because they're good at making money in these markets, which means that they're creating some value somewhere, uh, whether it's, it's reflected information, whether it's getting rid of mispricings, but whatever actual way in which they're the fact that they make money in, in a free market, and we still have at least to some extent a free market. In a free market, if you can make money over the long term, you're doing something productive. Sometimes it's hard to point at exactly what it is, but you're doing something productive. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't be making the money. You wouldn't be generating those returns. And so hedge fund guys are making money for, productively for the reasons I said before, and they're making money for their clients. So they make a lot of money. Good for them. That's that's. Fantastic. Would they make as much money in a completely free market? Who knows? I mean, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, J.P. Morgan was very, very wealthy. He wasn't as wealthy as, as Rockefeller, just like the hedge fund guys are not as wealthy as Bill Gates. So are hedge fund guys more wealthy today than, than, uh, than J.P. Morgan was when the markets were a lot freer? I, I don't get a sense of that. So I think finance, because it's a difficult skill, and because it's so crucially important, will always generate for the best spectacular returns. Uh, and those are, those are justified because of the incredibly productive nature of what they do. So turning to the financial crisis, now obviously we could do 20 hours, and we've written on this in Free Market Revolution. Uh, our friend John Allison has written an entire book on the subject. But... Can you at least give a little high level, and particularly focusing on the financial industry and the role of derivatives, say a little bit about how you view the uh, cause of the financial industry versus the contemporary narrative that basically they were greedy and blew up the economy? So fundamentally, I believe the financial crisis was caused at the root by by two government policies. and, and the one, and we can and we can see how that plays out into the financial industry. But there are two policies. One is uh, a policy of keeping interest rates very very low in order to avoid the pain of recession, in order to pay, uh, avoid the pain of, of of some restructuring going on in the economy. And this is coming out of the recession of of 2002, post dot com bubble and post 9/11. The U.S. economy was going to recession, and Alan Greenspan engineered what they what was called at the time a soft landing. That is, no recession by lowering interest rate below the rate of inflation and thus uh, flooding, in a sense, the markets with money, uh, cheap money, so that people wouldn't, would continue to invest, um, even though one could argue that they had been investing wrongly and unwisely up to that point. And that's why we had a recession. The recessions are usually a correction of unwise investing. Um, so... He kept interest rates very, very low for two and a half years, below the rate of inflation for two and a half years, which I think created massive malinvestment, massive bad investments in the wrong places. Uh, and a lot of that money landed up flowing into housing. Um, it, had, it was already flowing into housing in the late 90s, early 2000s, but then it really started flooding into housing. And the reason that money went into housing and not into something else is because of the second piece of the puzzle, which is housing policy. That is the Freddie and Fannie and the whole government program, which is a multi-institutional program, focused on increasing homeownership in, in America. 
Uh, and this is both parties. This is not Democrats and Republicans. This is George Bush and, and Clinton and going back all the way to Jimmy Carter and the Community Reinvestment Act. But really, Freddie and Fannie became these um, monstrous, monstrously large organizations. They were basically buying up mortgages, securitizing them, and selling those securities on the marketplace. And because they had a mandate to buy up uh, uh, mortgages of low-income Americans, uh, they didn't discriminate in terms of the quality of the mortgages they were willing to buy. So they were basically willing to buy junk and repackage it. And because they had the impromptu of of government-sponsored entities, so they were basically government entities, once they were packaged and sold to securities, people thought, well, these are repackaged by Freddie and Fannie. How bad could they be? These are mortgages that Freddie and Fannie gave a thumbs up to. How bad could they be? Well, it turns out they could be very bad. Uh, the standards were lowered. It used to be they would only do uh, mortgages where there was 20% down and 30-year fixed mortgages. Now they were doing 3% down and almost nothing, and, and, uh, and, and variable rates so that people got killed when rates started going up. And because they were doing it on such a scale, that, so, so you've got these two things. You've got the, 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 the Freddie and Fannie, and you've got low interest rates. Low interest rates drive the money into housing, which then gets funneled into Freddie and Fannie. Now, this creates a, a, a real incentive, a real bad incentive for bankers. Um, they could sit this out and let Freddie and Fannie do it all, or they could try to compete with Freddie and Fannie. And... Uh, it looks like you can make a lot of money doing this. So investment bankers, I think, from a long perspective, uh, not very smartly, go into this business of buying up mortgages, not really thinking too closely about their true value, breaking them up and, and securitizing them. Part of the incentive for them to do that, and this is where I get into now, why did the financial markets behave stupidly or not long term? They, they, they were very short-term. They had uh, mostly financial institutions, if, if you look at the investment banks who were re, uh, repackaging these instruments. Uh, they had too big to fail, which is, which is this idea that the government tells you, we'll make sure you never go bankrupt. We'll bail you up. Um, and this particularly affects... The bondholders, the, the people who provide capital constantly to banks, short-term capital to banks, and the, and the banks then use that capital to do what they do. Bondholders were bailed out during this crisis. Everybody was bailed out during this crisis, except shareholders, some shareholders. But generally, bondholders were bailed out. So that the perception was, we can take on as much risk as we want. Shareholders like it because when we reap rewards, stock prices go up. And we like it because we get very large bonuses we like it because we get very large bonuses when we make a lot of money. Um, and when things implode, yeah, the government's going to step in and bail us out some way. Right? So it's no big deal. So that was an incentive to go into this and become short-minded. And a lot of this, look, a lot of this is implicit. Uh, John Allison say, always says, look, Wall Street is always greedy. Greedy in the sense of trying to make money. It's always looking for ways to make more money faster. And in a free market, that's a very healthy thing, and that means that they're looking for productive uses for the capital. But when you have such a regulated, controlled, distorted by interest rates marketplace, now the signals you're getting from the market are not accurate. 
And that causes you to be short-term because you don't know what's going to happen long-term. What happens long-term is dependent on what the Fed does. Does it increase interest rates? Does it keep them low? It's keeping them below the rate of inflation. That doesn't make any economic sense to keep it below the rate of inflation because you're getting a negative real rate of return, which in a free market would, would never happen. Nobody's going to pay you, uh, pay you to borrow money from them. Um, and yet the Fed is doing this irrational, what seems to be irrational stuff. So it distorts decision-making. And when you distort decision-making, when you make it impossible for financiers to think long-term, they think short-term. So they see a profit opportunity and they jump into it. And then you tell them, don't worry about risk because we've got you covered on the downside. Well, yes, then they behave in ways that from the perspective of long-term wealth creation make no sense. But they can't do long-term wealth creation with these kind of incentives. So that's, so that's what happened. That's what distorted the financial markets and why they behaved badly, and they did. But the core of the crisis was the interest rates and Freddie and Fannie and, and these marketplaces. Freddie and Fannie was, was so big, they dwarfed any of the financial institutions, and the leverage they had on dwarfed anything Lehman or, or, or Goldman or anybody else had. So when they went under, they dragged everybody down, basically. They dragged down the whole economy at the end of the day. Um, it wasn't Lehman's bankruptcy that dragged down the economy. It was, you know, so add to this, what really caused OA to be more than just a recession was the, the way government responded to it. The bailouts, the panic, the, 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 the Paulson going on television and saying, if Congress doesn't give me approval to be financial dictator, which was what he did when he was trying to get top. He said, give me $700 billion and I should be able to do whatever I want with it. And if you don't give it to me, the economic world will end. I mean, that's scary. That's Lehman bankruptcy? Eh. Financial markets could easily have dealt with that. So when we left off, Iran, we were talking about the way in which um, the government really helped contribute to the cause of the financial crisis in the aftermath, turning it into a real crisis rather than just a downturn. Um, we could say a lot about this, but I want to focus then on, I think, one aspect that's most relevant to finance, and that's the, the role of derivatives and, in, most importantly, from the positive perspective, are, do you think derivatives are a valuable, productive innovation, or are they something that really wasn't creating value, and in effect, that's what you get. So, so there are a lot of different types of derivatives out there in the financial world, and derivatives have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, they've been options on financial instruments for a very long time. Um, and they serve an incredibly important productive function. Uh, right now, there's a good example of that where um, oil companies, uh, price of oil has, gone, has halved over the last uh, year. It's gone from 110 to, I think, it, it's, it's right now at 45, something like that. So it's uh, per, per barrel. All companies use derivatives in order to hedge the price. So that for, a lot, for, for about a year, oil prices didn't take any financial hit from the price of oil going down because they had derivatives that compensated them as the price went down. And some speculators somewhere lost money, right? But the oil company saved money and was able to continue functioning and, and maybe readjust its production to accommodate dramatically lower oil prices. It smooths out the transition. Now, uh, at some point, those derivatives that the oil companies bought will run out and they'll take a hit. 
But in the meantime, they've had time to adjust to the new economic reality. Uh, farmers use derivatives all the time to lock in prices for grain or to lock in prices for produce and so on. Companies can use interest rate swaps to lock in different interest rates and different types of interest rates. They can take a, a loan with the fixed interest rates and, and say, oh, no, situation has not changed and I actually would prefer a variable rate, and they can swap those. That's, that's what a lot of these swap derivatives do. You can control for currency risk. So what derivatives have done is have taken a very, very important piece of the financial puzzle, which is risk, uncertainty about the future, and reduced that risk or eliminated in the sense of made it irrelevant to the particular project involved. And that is crucial. Again, you would not have a modern world today without robust financial markets and financial institutions. You cannot have robust financial markets and institutions without derivatives. Derivatives make the financial markets, the institutions, and the people who depend on them. Derivatives reduce the risk of those, all those transactions dramatically and make those transactions possible. So derivatives are incredibly productive and incredibly important and incredibly valuable economically. Now, some derivatives are consequences of regulation or government policy. So, for example, many derivatives that are linked to interest rates are probably wouldn't exist in a free market because in a free market, there wouldn't be as much volatility as there is today and so much uncertainty as there is today with interest rates because, uh, because of the Federal Reserve, because government, in a sense, is manipulating the currency. Government is manipulating the money. The same with currencies. There wouldn't be as much... In terms, of, in terms of currencies, because you'd have a currency, you could denominate stuff in gold, let's say, if that turned out to be the global currency, and then it would be stable. So a lot of derivatives are created in order to deal with the uncertainty and the risk created by government. You can even buy derivatives against certain legal risks or regulatory risks that the government creates. So there are a lot of... So the, so the derivatives are also used where you can't use a conventional product like insurance because, again, regulations prohibit you, derivatives function like insurance and insurance-like. Now, there were a lot of derivatives in the background of the financial crisis because all these mortgages were securitized. The, the securities are basically derivatives because what does derivative mean? It means that its value is derived from not an asset that it has a direct claim on, but a derivative claim on, a claim through an asset. So you own a security in a pool of mortgages whose value is, comes from a mortgage on a particular home or a bunch of particular homes. Uh, so, yeah, so, so but that is, that's fantastic. The fact that we can take loans in mortgages and divvy it up and create these pieces of paper that millions of people can hold, or millions of institutions can hold, or pension plans can hold, and make money off of mortgages and provide more liquidity to banks to give out more mortgages, if this market was all healthy, and if it wasn't regulated, and there weren't rating agencies that are regulated and controlled by government. So if it was all really market-based, this would be a phenomenal phenomena, and, and it would be a very, very productivity and, and uh, standard of living enhancing mechanism. Um, 
it would reduce risk. Again, the pooling reduces risk, so it makes it possible for the interest charge on the mortgages to go down. That's a healthy phenomenon. And it's sophisticated. It's cool. It's actually really clever. If you look at the math of it, if you look at the statistics of it, and it works until the government messes with it. It works. So the derivatives involved in a financial crisis are cool and good and healthy and wonderful and would actually, in a free market, make us make things less volatile, less risky, and more productive and raise our standard of living. Because the government messes in it, you, you get screwy outcomes. But the outcomes are not caused by the derivatives. It's caused by the government messing with it. The same with the other instrument, uh, which was um, the CDSs, right? which provided basically a the form credit, of insurance, credit swaps. default swaps, which provided insurance on, on bonds. It's basically an insurance policy. It's nothing more than an insurance policy. Now, you could use that insurance policy to gamble. right? It's like me taking out a life insurance on your life. Right? I can do that, and if you don't die, right, then I lose my money. So what? Right? So you take out a credit default swap on a company betting in a sense that it will go bankrupt, and then it doesn't go bankrupt, you lose your money. The idea that credit default swaps would wipe out the economy, the world economy, is a ludicrous idea. It, it, it has no relationship to the, to the reality of the world, and it shows a complete ignorance of, of, of how swaps in particular, but which is what credit default swaps are, but how derivatives work. Yes, if, if um, AIG would have gone bankrupt, there would have been a lot of messiness in the market. There would have been, somebody, some people might have gone bankrupt. Some people would have lost a lot of money. But the, the swap or the derivative is not the assets. The assets wouldn't have necessarily gone bankrupt. It's, it's a financial transaction. So risk would have gone up. Some people would have suffered. Other people would have gained. The world will not have ended. Um, and again, in a healthy, unregulated market, these things are productivity enhancers and, 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 uh, and quality of life enhancers. And that is the end of the second part to our three-part interview with Yaron Brook. And with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.